you know, I just want to uh, thank our worship team. Uh, they just sounded so good, our tech team. Can we just give a thank you and a clap? We don't thank you guys enough. We appreciate all that you do. Uh, it's so wonderful to worship together outside. I'm just so appreciative. Uh, and today, friends, we're, we're continuing our sermon series, Rooted Together, through the book of Colossians. Uh, we talked about being rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And last week, we discussed about being rooted together by being a community centered on the word, contending for one another, having courageous hearts, and commitment to life and community. And I said it last week that we are not a service to simply attend, but we are a community to belong to. And that's a significant difference. And today, we will be focusing on the theme of being liberated for life in Christ. Uh, and if the gospel uh, is the soil the roots are going into, and last week was the intertwining of our roots together, today is going to be more about pulling out the weeds, some of the things that choke out the plant, the, the choke the plant and make it unfruitful. And remember that Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians that he hasn't met because he's contending for them so that they would continue to live in the truth of the gospel. And he tells them in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So now in the Greco-Roman world, there were these competing philosophies. Philosophy was a big tradition. And these were, these were ways of life, more than just thinking. And even religions were considered a type of philosophy. Judaism was considered a type of philosophy. They were competing traditions that were supposed to form virtuous people. So the question was, which philosophy, which way of life is forming the most virtuous people? Which philosophy was true? And it kind of makes me think of uh, those great 80s movies, The Karate Kid, and its spin-off TV show, Cobra Kai. Is anybody familiar with The Karate Kid? Okay, okay, a good number of you. Anybody familiar with the spin-off TV show? Okay, just a handful. Yeah, all right. Just want to know what I'm working with here, making sure. Uh, and, but as you, as you know, karate is more than just a bunch of moves. They are often philosophies. They are ways of life. You know, different styles of karate have different underlying philosophies, different visions of life. And the two dojos featured in these stories, they could not have had more different philosophies. Cobra Kai's well-known philosophy, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Now, and that may seem like a harmless philosophy, but if you watch the shows, over time, it forms kids who are just absolutely ruthless and don't show any mercy to anybody. Now, on the other hand, Miyagi-Do, Mr. Miyagi's philosophy, it's known for balance and harmony and here's the really tr tricky part friends outside looking in these dojos look almost exactly identical it's really just kids learning how to fight they're learning karate they wear uniforms they have a teacher they compete in tournaments they look extremely similar but the philosophies they are rooted in could not be more different and this is how it is with following christ and the competing philosophies of this world the competing ideologies, the religions, the political movements of our day. Being in Christ is its own type of philosophy. And what I mean by that is not just thinking, but a way of life with its own story and values and teachings and also a community trying to become more and more like Christ. 
It's kind of like a dojo. You join it in order to learn how to practice it alongside others. Now, the philosophies of this world, they may, they may look on the outside compatible with following Christ, but we have to be very careful to guard the uniqueness of Christ, our philosophy, our beliefs, our way of life. And there are many philosophies out there that look okay. They look similar, but they are rooted in destructive lies that are not good for those who follow Christ. So how can we, be ins- how can we ensure, how can we guard ourselves, as Paul says, to see to it, to do something intentional, that no one will take us captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy? Well, Paul is going to give us some instructions here through the book of Colossians. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking, uh, starting in verse 4. And we're going to be looking at three ways that we can find liberation in Christ from these things. So number one, in Christ, we are liberated from lies. In Christ, we are liberated from lies. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So he says, first of all, watch out. You may be deceived by things that sound really good. But notice it's a lie, but it's a lie that makes sense. It seems very plausible. In fact, there are fine-sounding arguments and reasons to back it up. So it's not without reason. You know, there was a reason that strike hard, strike first, no mercy, sounded like a pretty good philosophy for a karate dojo. But I, when, it, when you get down into the roots, you realize that it's forming people in a destructive manner. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So the words that Paul uses here are very strong. See to it that no one takes you captive, takes you captive as a prisoner, or carries you away as plunder, locking you up. I mean, these are strong words, but let me clarify. This is not a judgment on philosophy as a concept. Paul was not opposed to philosophy and reason. In fact, it says in the Bible that he used reason to persuade people that Christ was the Messiah. So there's nothing wrong with philosophy itself and the love of wisdom and using the brains that God has given us to think. But we have to watch out because that very gift of reason can be used against us to trick us into things that sound very reasonable. And at this time, there is a particular philosophy that Paul was concerned about. Uh, And I've read like dozens of commentaries on this. No one is exactly sure what philosophy Paul is addressing here. It seems to be some type of uh, Jewish mysticism. And there was, uh, they were teaching that people needed to follow these strict food laws, the kosher laws. They needed to follow the Jewish calendar to engage in mystical practices like worshiping angels. That God was so holy, we needed other mediators in order to find salvation. So really, this was a form of syncretism, of combining Christianity and Judaism and some thoughts from paganism. And it really kind of boils down to Christ plus something else. Christ plus some other kind of philosophy. And the bottom line is that's not according to Christ. And that really is the main thing for Paul. Anything that is not according to Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, that is a deceptive philosophy to be careful of. 
Biblical scholar David Garland puts it this way, any religious tenet or philosophy of life that professes to offer forgiveness of sins, deeper knowledge, deliverance, or the finishing touches to salvation through any other means than Christ's death and resurrection, it's fundamentally flawed and dangerous to the spiritual health of Christians. So getting in these lies is very dangerous. It's taking you captive. And unfortunately, it's very easy for this to happen. So how can we avoid it? Well, one way is to become aware of these philosophies and to recognize why they are false. And that is what Paul is going to do. He will point out the lies that underline these philosophies that the Colossians are believing. And the reality is nothing is new. We often get trapped by these same lies. So we're going to learn from Paul uh, how we can be liberated from these lies. And really, Paul, I think, is going to boil it down to two things. And he's going to point out that we get trapped in legalism on the one hand or lawlessness on the other. Or whether it's Jessica on one hand or Ellie on the other, you're going to get trapped by one of them, okay? All right, so that's the second point I want to make is that in Christ, we are liberated from legalism. We're liberated from legalism. And this is kind of the first reasonable thing that Paul begins to address. And legalism is the idea that I am made right with God by what I do or what I don't do. And legalism can often have strict regulations or prescribe certain rituals. And often people who are trapped by legalism, they prohibit things that the Bible does not prohibit, and they prescribe things that the Bible does not prescribe. And they might say that you have to do these types of things in order to be right or right with God. And so Paul begins to confront this, and he says in chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So what this philosophy was saying is that even though you had Christ, you still need to eat kosher. You can't drink, which was not in the Bible, not a part of kosher laws. And you need to celebrate Jewish holidays. And Paul is saying, no, you have Christ, who remember just a couple chapters ago, he said he is the fullness of God. All creation was made in him and for him and unto him. If you have Christ, you need nothing else. So that's why he says in verse 20, verses 23, since you died with Christ to these spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have uh, to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, these are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So these teachers were essentially recommending very intense spiritual practices and very strict regulations. And you may wonder, why were people even attracted to this? This doesn't even sound like a thing you'd want to, you would fall into. Well, N.T. Wright says this, one of the principal appeals of Judaism in the pagan world of the first century was its high moral code. It made heavy demands, and when often when people are sick and tired of the murky and immoral world of paganism, they are glad to embrace a way of life which offers clear, bright, clean lines. The very detail of the regulations and the severe self-discipline needed to keep them would make them feel like they, are, they must really be making advances in their moral 
and spiritual lives. So in other words, friends, it gave people a sense of what they needed to do, and it made them feel like they were, oh, they were really making progress, they were getting right. And that's the key. Friends, Paul is not condemning spiritual disciplines. We know those are valuable. But he's condemning the idea that we need to follow all of these things to be made right with God. And really, at bottom line, it's salvation by anything other than Christ. And often when we get trapped into legalistic tendencies, it takes the focus off Christ and puts it onto a program. And it's really easier, I think, to fall into this than you might think. Uh, you know, from time to time, uh, I enjoy reading uh, secular self-help books and secular leadership books. Uh, and I find them to often to be immensely valuable and very helpful. Uh, I have gleaned a lot of truth about setting goals and habits and those things. Now, but however, when you encounter these things, you have to be careful because they are based in a very different philosophy than Christianity. They, they have a different understanding of the purpose of our existence. And the focus, whether we really realize it or not, is on personal and worldly success. So these secular principles, they often can be, again, very helpful, but they can quickly take us off the rails into idolatry. You know, David Garland says this. This is so powerful. If we set as our goals self-discipline, self-awareness, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-actualization, or self-help, we usually wind up with a worship of the self. That's a form of legalism. Following a self-help program, a self-help ritual to bring yourself fulfillment apart from Christ. Friends, let me tell you today, you don't need more of yourself. You, don't, you already have enough of yourself. You need more of Christ. And if you have Christ, you need nothing else. I hope you won't misunderstand me or misunderstand the scriptures here. I really believe that we need robust disciplines to grow in Christ. I just did a whole series on holy habits a little while ago. They are super important, but they are not the goal. They are the means to grow in Christ. They are the means of connecting with Christ. The goal, friends, is Christ. It's all about Christ. It's Christ who saves us. Then we grow in him so we don't perform these godly habits in order to be right, in order to be saved. We pursue these things because we already have been saved in Christ. And it's all for him and to become more like him. Are you with me? So one ditch that we can fall into is this, legal, this legalistic tendency on one side, this unhealthy obsession with these rituals or, or regulations. Salvation apart from Christ. But the other ditch is on the opposite side. And this is a form of libertarian freedom, a sense of lawlessness. So that's the, the final point I want to make today, is that in Christ, we are liberated from lawlessness. Now, Paul has essentially finished confronting this philosophy of, Judas, of Jewish mysticism, saying you don't need any of that stuff because you have Christ. You don't need angels as mediators because you have the one mediator. You don't need to worry about circumcision because you've been circumcised in Christ. Okay, so what should we do instead? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So first of all, Paul is saying you are now connected to Christ. And so now everything in your life is radically reoriented around him. And this world that we live in is now just a temporary state until we are with Christ or until he comes. And like I said in the call to worship, what happened to Christ happened to you. Jesus died and was raised to life. You are in him and he is one with himself as we sang. So therefore you died and you have been raised to new life in Christ, a new holy life. You know, the self-help books that I often like to read, these, the secular philosophies of this day, they talk about finding your true self, being yourself, following your heart. The goal for many secular people is to find out who you are. Gosh, what is my Enneagram number? I don't know. You know, like, what am I? You know, find out who I am and be true to that. And there is, that's a philosophy to be careful of. The Bible says your true self, your whole self, is hidden with Christ and God. You no longer live but Christ lives in you. And you won't find yourself by looking within anymore. You won't find yourself by following your heart, following your impulses, which are worldly and sinful. You will find yourself, you will find your purpose and who you are created to be by setting your mind on things, to, uh, things above, a heart that's focused on the kingdom in Christ. And I might add, the goal is not even to find ourselves. The goal is to find Christ and to be like Christ. You know, the common notions of our, of our day, they lead to a sense of lawlessness. If the goal, as it's reasoned, is to find myself and to be myself, then anything that restricts my impulses or desires is inherently harmful and wrong. And people will use fine-sounding arguments to make the case. Well, God made, made us, our desires are God-given and genetic. God wants to have uh, give us the desires of our hearts. He's a good father. Why wouldn't a good father want his children to be happy? It's a fine-sounding argument. But followed to its conclusion, it's a hollow philosophy, a deceptive idea that sounds good but leads to lawlessness. And it leads us to essentially erasing any concept of sin. And what happens is it leads to greed and materialism. Oh, because God just wants me to be happy. It leads to sexual immorality of all kinds, to adultery, to harmful speech because we are just being ourselves and telling it like it is. Friends, this is false teaching. This is not according to Jesus or what he taught. We are not our desires. We cannot trust them. We are supposed to kill sin and put on a whole new way of life. And people say, well, what about Jesus? Didn't he preach a message of, of love and grace? And of course, that's a fine-sounding argument. But he also came to preach a message of repentance. And Jesus, our Lord, he said, if, 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 if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life maimed than to have your whole body be thrown into hell. And this is what Paul is saying. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Friends, I would not be a good pastor if I did not point out these things that happen to be unpopular. 
The wrath of God is coming because of these things. And I simply want to ask you, does your view of Christianity include the judgment of God against sin? I mean, Jesus talked about this all the time. And we should tremble at these words that the world will be held held accountable for sin. And the sins that people say are not sin, the sins that people applaud, the sins that people encourage us not to feel guilty about, it says God's wrath. That means his judgment is coming because of these things. So Paul says, rid your life entirely of them. He says in verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in which you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger and rage. Oh, malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Oh, don't we need that? Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. Over and over again, we're called to a life of holiness. Die to sin. Live alive in Christ. Because that is the truth of who we are. So brothers and sisters, in order to stay rooted together, we must be liberated from the lies of this world, from the lies of the enemy. We must avoid the ditch of legalism on the one hand and avoid the ditch of lawlessness on the other side. How can we ensure that we do this? Well, that would require uh, almost another sermon entirely. I'd like to get you out of here uh, before noon (laughs) so you can eat some lunch. Uh, But I think the main key was already said in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 says, so, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And I think the key is this phrase, just as you received. Now, this is not our modern notion of receiving Christ into our heart, as important of that, that's a great thing to do. But what Paul is talking about here is receiving a way of life that's been passed down. You're receiving a code of belief, beliefs and ethics, a tradition, and Paul says continue to live in Christ just as you were taught. In other words, we enter the dojo of Christ on Christ's terms. We don't get to pick and choose what we like, what we don't like. If Christ Jesus says, wax on, wax off, guess what? Wax on, wax off. If he says to paint the fence, we paint the fence. If he says sand the floor, you sand the floor. Even if just like Ralph Macchio, you don't understand why he's asking this. You do it anyway because he is the master. Do you want Christ as your master or not? I like what uh, author Rachel Gilson says. She says, if I only obey God, when I fully understand and when I fully agree, then I've made myself God. Can your God call you to do things that you don't understand or agree with? And will you obey before you understand? Friends, we are called to receive Christ as Lord, and we come to him as beggars. Beggars cannot be choosers. We come to Christ, we come to Christianity as beggars, and so we humbly receive a way of life. We don't get to decide what it teaches, what it commands, what it practices. We don't get to make it up, nor should we. We don't reinvent the wheel. We don't change the word of God. We humbly receive. So don't let the lies of this world throw you off course. 
Continue to live your life in Christ just as you received him, just as you were taught, and continue to root your life in him and in the truth of the word of God. And this is something that we, I believe, we cannot do by ourselves. We need community. Paul says this a a different way in Ephesians. And and we'll close with this. Paul says, we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Rooted together, rooted together in Christ. Not a service to attend, a community to belong to. And for that matter, a sermon should not be a program to watch, but a word to discuss, to let it take root deep in to your life, to discuss after the service in your relationships, in your homes, in your covenant groups, in your small groups, how can this truth be rooted in my life as a community together? And my prayer is that the Lord would would continue to keep us rooted and to continue to send our roots down deep in him. Amen? Let's pray that the Lord would do that. Join me in prayer.